Good morning, church. As you can see, that I am just as clumsy as I ever have been. Because I'm quite normal. And sometimes, for normal people, things go wrong. And this series that we are beginning to uh, do is when we look at First Peter in some depth over a period of eight weeks, and it's my privilege to introduce it. And uh, it was written by Peter around about AD uh, 64, maybe 63. The uh, commentators are not quite sure, but it's just before the persecution of Nero began. And it was he was in Rome. And the reason that he wrote it was because some news had filtered through to him. They were saying, it's getting a bit tough to be a disciple of Jesus. This is about 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. And they had, these churches had appeared in northern Turkey particularly. Remember that Paul was going through Galatia and he got as far as Ephesus and they got the Macedonian call. These are places that Paul had not been to. So one of the questions is, where do these churches come from? How do they arise? One thought is that maybe some of the people who had been in Jerusalem at Pentecost had, had become converted then and gone back to that area because that and those names get mentioned. So one of the reasons that they were feeling a bit uncomfortable is they didn't fit into the pagan communities like they used to. And suddenly the government was trying to take notice of them and was beginning to persecute them because they were different. They didn't behave like everybody else was behaving. And of all the people that could have written to them to encourage them, Peter was the absolute best. And the reason was because Peter was not a fantastic disciple. Well, he was in the end, but he had a lot of trouble. You see, he, we know a lot, a fair bit about him. We know that he lived in Bethsaida, that he was married, and that he was a fisherman. Now, his friends, James and John, learnt their trade of fishing from their father Zebedee. And it's quite likely that Peter learnt his trade of fishing from, Zebedee, from his father as well. So he would have learnt how to mend nets, how to fish, how to sail a boat, how to work out what the weather was doing, using the old-fashioned method of looking up in the sky. And he would have learnt how to swear. Probably all learnt by his, from his father, but he was a normal fisherman. But there was something missing in his life. He, although he fitted into his society, he knew what to do, what was expected of him, he was looking for something more. And rumours began to circulate amongst the region about the coming Messiah. You know, was this Messiah really turning up? So when John the Baptist came, people asked him, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Well, Peter's brother was really taken by this, so he hived off and he found John the Baptist and he became his disciple. Now, I, I'm just guessing at this, I will admit, but I imagine that he would have come back at some point and had a chat to Peter. And Peter would have said, well, what's involved in being a disciple? And Andrew would have said, well, it's quite easy, really. You listen and you watch what he's, your master's doing and then you imitate him. And Peter would have thought, oh, yeah, I can do that, I think. Do you know the word disciple occurs in 269 times in the Bible? And the word Christian is only used three times. And these days we've got to a, a point where 
we say, oh yes, we are a Christian, and we have this, the world has this image of people who are passive, well-behaved, and they don't do lots of things. And they really tend to be sidelined. But disciples do an awful lot. So Peter was trying to make this transition from being a fisherman, where he knew what he was supposed to be doing, to a disciple. And he had to listen and learn. But that was not his strength. He was what we call a kinesthetic learner. He learned by doing. And if he got things wrong, he would do it again until he got it right. But listening was not his strength. And I'm sure you all know people like that. You may have even been one. Here's an example. This comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them, that's the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise from the dead. And the following verse says, And he told them plainly. So it's quite clear what he's trying to get across. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, because Peter thought he'd got the wrong end of the stick. Now we don't know what Peter was saying. But it appears that there was a group of disciples in Jesus. And Peter said, come over here, um, Jesus. I just want to tell you a few things. Like, why on earth are you saying all these negative things? Look, your poll numbers are through the roof. We've done focus groups, and they really like your miracles. Look, if you just stay positive, you're going to become the Messiah, and everything will be wonderful. But none of this doom and gloom. But Jesus turned round, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So he looked up, and all the other disciples were looking. Here's Peter, put his foot in it again. I wonder what's going on. And then Jesus said, and I believe he would have said it quite loudly, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. And all the other disciples thought, ooh, he's really done it. But you know... You and I can understand that, as I think we can, but Peter couldn't. What he heard was, Jesus is, is worried. He's, he's stressed. He thinks he's in danger. So he was thinking, where can I get a concealed weapon to protect him from? That's what he was thinking. And when no one was looking, he went out and got one. So when we get to the incident in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tried to defend Jesus by hacking Malchus's ear off. Now, we don't know much about Malchus. We don't know the shape of his ears or how big they were or whether they stuck out from the side of his head. But I imagine that Peter was full of adrenaline and was really determined to, to do something. And he's a fisherman, remember, not a trained swordsman. I don't think he was aiming for Malchus's ear. I think he was aiming to crack his head open, and he missed what happened? Jesus healed Malchus's ear and then said to Peter, Put your sword away in its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. The account varies slightly from gospel to gospel. But Peter was trying so hard to be the perfect disciple, and he got it wrong again. So he wasn't doing too well. And it's after this he goes, gets down in the dumps, and that's when he denies Christ three times. Here's the cock crow and thinks, oh no, I've stuffed up again. And it took Jesus coming to him uh, after the resurrection by the lakeside 
to restore him. So he knew what it was like to be a disciple who got things wrong. So we can say he was a bit of a misfit, and he was writing to other misfits because the people in uh, Turkey, particularly northern Turkey, were finding that they didn't fit in either. Now, the reason that I can say this is because if you read the first verse, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, all these people are exiles. They don't fit in. In fact, other translations, that one was on the uh, New International, translate this word as strangers, sojourners, foreigners. I think the New King James calls them pilgrims. People who don't have roots in that pagan community. Why didn't they fit in? Well, first of all, they were chosen by the, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They were picked out as being special, just like we are. And the, that process involved the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So they were being transformed from lumps of clay into some beautiful pottery, if you want to use that image. Why were they being transformed? And why are we being transformed? Though, and Peter goes on to say in verse 2 that those who were chosen were chosen to obey Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, there were something like 613 rules and regulations that the Jews had to um, adhere to. But in the New Testament, there are only two, which is much easier, and you're familiar with them. First one is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. So the Turkish Christians could have a little checklist. They could say, are we doing this? Well, we don't worship idols anymore. So we got that one. We don't visit temple prostitutes. No. So we got that one covered as well. And we don't give money to temples or any other uh, economic support. So we're doing well. We're honoring God. See, when we put God first, we are obeying Jesus. When we worship God, we are obeying Jesus. And when we study the Bible, we are obeying Jesus. We are honoring God completely. The second commandment is, is like the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we help others, we are obeying Jesus. Good to know. Now, the Christians in... Um, Turkey, heard this new one about respecting your wife. Well, they hadn't quite got that. They were working on it. So you find that in, a bit later in First um, Peter, Peter has to remind them how to treat their wives. But caring for the poor, they had got the hang of. So rather than giving money to the temple, they would start giving money to the poor. Now, when we hear these things, we say, oh, this is great. I've got the principles in my head, but how do I do it? How do I put this in my own life? Who will show us how to do it? Now, Paul, when he was in Corinth, said he was there for about two years teaching, you must follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Which is, so when Paul left and the Corinthians had an ethical dilemma, they would say, what would Paul do? 
and then they would work out the answer. But who did the early Christians in Turkey have as a role model? Because they haven't seen Paul for ages, and Peter was in Rome, and so who do they have? Well, I want to suggest to you that they had Jesus, the Lion of Judah, as their role model. And let me explain why. Because Jesus did some pretty disruptive things. He challenged authorities. In Mark 7 8, Jesus said to the um, Pharisees, You disobey God's commands in order to obey what humans have taught. He spoke against legalism. I don't know if you can see from that picture, but it's supposed to be an ox in a well, or a cow in a well, I'm not sure. But anyway, it's some sort of animal with horns and sad eyes in a well. And Jesus said, look, if your animal falls into a hole with or without water on the, on the Sabbath, you're not going to leave it there. You're going to pull it out because you show compassion. You don't just follow the letter of the law, you follow the principle. Now his disciples, including Peter, also challenged authorities. You might remember when they were hauled before the Sanhedrin and told, stop preaching the gospel. They said, we must obey God rather than man. And they said it in such an authoritative way that the Sanhedrin was astonished because they said, these are unlearned men. Now, when um, Nero turned up around about AD 64 and said, worship me, all the Christians in Turkey put on their grumpy cat face and said, no, not going to do that. We're not burning incense to the genius of the emperor, which really annoyed him and hence the start of the persecution. Jesus also challenged cultural norms. For example, in Luke 12, 51, he says something quite um, striking. He says, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth to the earth? No, indeed. I came to make people choose sides. And he goes on to say that in a family of five, two will split one way and three will go the other. In other words, families will be split because some will believe in Jesus and some won't. And that for us is very sad. And in some places of the world, it can get you killed. But just what he said, he said he came to make people choose sides. He also did radical things, like people didn't touch lepers in those days. Lepers were supposed to keep out of the edge of town and ring bells when they were coming and come along and say, unclean, unclean, a bit like COVID, I suppose. And, but Jesus came up and he touched lepers. In this particular incident recorded in Luke chapter 5, the leper said, look, if you're willing... Will you pray for me and, and heal me and make me clean? And Jesus said, yes, I am willing. Be cleansed. And he touched him. Nobody else would dare do that. The Ephesian Christians also challenged cultural norms. This was the part of the church that Paul founded. And what happened was they, they turned from the idols to a living and true God. And then they went home and looked at their bookcases. Now, in those days, books were expensive because they had to be handwritten. And what they did is they found all the books on witchcraft they had and they brought them and they piled them in a great heap and set fire to them. And somebody estimated that they were worth about 50,000 pieces of silver. And a piece of silver was a day's wage. So by my estimate, it's at least a million-dollar bonfire. And that Ephesian church was serious about its repentance 
And because of that, they had a lasting impact even through the second and third centuries. The other thing that the Christians began to do was to treat their women with more respect. In those days, women were just treated as property. And in a Roman household, the the father of the household had the power of life and death over everybody in that. But the Christians were told, and, and I pinched this verse from chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter said, If you are a husband, you should be thoughtful of your wife, treat her with honour. So the Christians were not into domestic violence. Everybody else could be, but they weren't. And I've been trying to imagine what it must have been like when. Suddenly, wives say, hey, to the pagan husbands, how come you treat me so poorly? That Christian guy down the road, he treats his wife with respect. So all the Christian guys who were doing the right thing would have then been looked down on by the pagans who weren't. So it was a disruptive influence. Jesus also upset economic patterns. The one that's most notable is when he walked into the temple, into the outer court, where the Gentiles were supposed to be allowed to pray, and started tipping over tables and chased all them out and said, you've made this into a den of thieves. So the Ephesian Christians, well, they decided that as part of their repentance, they wouldn't buy the silver idols. And you remember Demetrius, the silversmith, was really upset. So he called all the guild together, and they had a big protest. And the town clerk said, look, for goodness sake, settle down, or the Romans will think we're here and have a riot here. Because, and they said, but, but these Christians, they're not buying our little statues. And what's worse is they're telling other people not to buy them. And our whole trade is just going down the gurgler. <coughs> Christians also wouldn't work in industries associated with idolatry or immorality. So if you were a stonemason, you were not going to help build a pagan temple. You were not going to be involved in making a statue. So they began to have an economic effect. Wealthy Christians were encouraged to give to the poor because there was no social security in those days. In fact, in Jeru- the church in Jerusalem set a precedent by looking after the widows in their own midst. They realised these widows were marginalised, had no other means of support, and they helped them. And that became a pattern for all the churches. They began to get involved in, in good works. And they were like disruptors, turning the world upside down, just like Jesus. Now, if we follow Jesus, the Lion of Judah, we too will be disruptors. Now, Christians were the ones that started hospitals, orphanages, food programs. When there was a plague, like the Antonine Plague, people were so scared of it that they would dump dying relatives or relatives they thought were dying, on the roadside. And a lot of them died. They didn't die of the plague. They died of things like dehydration. But the Christians came along, picked them up, um, looked after them. Some of them, Christians, died in doing so. But a lot of lives were saved. They were willing to do this, and they were disrupting. Now, we live in an age where the state has taken over a lot of those responsibilities. And so you can't go out and start an orphanage or... Uh, start a, well, you can start a food program, I suppose. So there's less and less opportunities for us to be disruptive in a positive way in our own culture. But you know the most disruptive people in the, in the planet? They're missionaries. 
They go to places like Calcutta with the Joya program. They take women out of prostitution. They teach them a trade. They rescue them from that situation and they give them some dignity. Now that's disruptive on a small scale and on a positive scale. And uh, I don't know if, if any of you are interested in ice hockey, but Central Otago has, has got ice and sometimes quite a lot of it. So we have ice hockey teams. Well, in Mongolia, the Christians have set, they have a problem in Mongolia because of lots of youth who kind of run wild. So some years ago, they started a, a soccer club to get them off the streets, and now they've started an ice hockey team. Why not? They've got plenty of ice, and they've got youth, and Christians are being slightly disruptive in helping the young people there. So I'm suggesting that if you cannot find something disruptive to do here in New Zealand, support a missionary who's doing disruptive things, who is changing people's lives, who's creating employment, and they do. They, create micro, they get involved with microloan schemes, they get involved like Julia in, in rescuing women out of prostitution and giving them a trade. They do lots of good things. This is a slight tangent, but it it's really intrigues me, so I'll tell you. Some years ago, I met a, a missionary who'd come from Mongolia, and he really liked pizza, but he could not find a single place in Ulaanbaatar to buy a pizza. So he thought, I'll make one. So he did, and he invited some Mongolians to taste it. And one Mongolian in particular thought they were wonderful. So he said, can you teach me how to make a pizza? So he said, okay, so he did. And that Mongolian went out and started his own pizza business, and it was a roaring success. And about 10 years ago, the pizza chains discovered there was a market in Ulaanbaatar, so they started to move in. So if you ever go there and you have a pizza, Remember, it was a Christian missionary who first seeded the idea. But you see, there's one problem. Although it's fun to be disruptive in a positive way and to help change the world, people don't dis like disruptors. And hence Peter said, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials because they were going through trials. Their own people were not happy with them because they had changed so much. The government wasn't happy with them. And so there was a risk of persecution. And one thing I've noticed, that when you are in a pressured place, when you feel like things are squeezing in you, on you, and you're going through a trial, time seems to slow down. And you think, will this ever end? But it does eventually. And if it does, Peter said, your faith will be like gold that has been tested in fire. And these trials will prove that your faith is worth much more than gold that can be destroyed. So we don't know why we go through certain things, but you can view it as a test, a test that you're going to pass. Peter also said that they will show that you'll be given praise and honor and glory when Jesus Christ returns. God is so good. And by raising Jesus from death, he has given us new life and a hope that lives on. God has something installed for you in heaven where it will never decay or be ruined or disappear. So there is a reward for being faithful. Now what supported Peter's hope? He had certain advantages that we don't have. He had seen amazing things. 
pardon me. He had seen Jesus performing miracles and had taken part in at least one of them when he walked on water. He was one of the three people on the planet who had seen the transfiguration. He had seen the resurrected Jesus. He had had an angel bust him out of jail. He had prayed for people and seen them healed. He had all these wonderful things that would support his hope. So whenever he got down, he could think of these things. But what supports our hope? We who love Jesus but have not seen him. Well, the first thing, I think, is a changed life. And this, sometimes we forget how much we've changed until we meet somebody who says to you, well, years ago you were really rotten and I didn't like you, but now you're quite a reasonable human being. I think, oh yeah, so I am. And that's always encouraging, particularly for parents. We also have spiritual gifts. When you go to do something and you just feel, no, that's not quite right. There's a little check in the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit operating in you. Or when suddenly you think, oh, maybe I should pray for somebody at 2 o'clock in the morning. Or maybe I should ring up somebody and see how they're getting on. That's the Holy Spirit giving you a nudge. Your spiritual gifts are working. And probably one of the biggest ones is answered prayer. So when you feel you're under trial, under pressure, you can think back, how many times has God answered prayer? I know in my own life, it's been many, many times. In fact, you read through some of the psalms like that, that the psalmist says, oh, woe is us, life's miserable. And then he remembers all the good things that, that God has done for the nation. And by the end, he's cheered himself up. It is an important thing to remember answered prayer. But also, as the Bible can speak to us, you can open up the Bible and read a passage you've read many times before, and suddenly, zoom, out leaps a verse. You think, wow, that's God speaking to me. I can hang on to that. That's a source of encouragement. Also, we have the experience of worship. We are told that the Holy Spirit is the, is the down payment of our inheritance. And when we worship together, there's a special... I mean, you can worship God individually and, and sense the presence of God, but when we do it together, it's magnified. When we pray and we sing and our hearts are open towards God, then the Holy Spirit can move in us and teach us things. Peter said, if we believe in him, we will obtain as the outcome of, of our faith the salvation of our souls. I'd like to finish by um, reading this prayer that Paul wrote in Romans 15, which Linda read that earlier, unbeknownst to me. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.